Greetings, fellow explorer. You have accessed Renegade Files, your podcast destination for paranormal events, unsolved mysteries, and black ops culture. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, coming to you from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files, episode 37, The Cyber Industrial Complex. Back in the old days, spying was cool. We had James Bond, undercover agents spying on the Germans, and international men of mystery. But even with a polished Hollywood persona being generated by the propaganda cartels, it was still rumored in conspiracy theory land that the U.S. government was using new technologies to spy on its free citizens. Edward Snowden proved this to be true, but the ways in which we conduct our daily lives has scarcely trembled. As information and its access became an increasingly complex spiderweb, the hacktivist group Anonymous emerged to shed light upon and throw obstacles at a few who either hid important information or used information for nefarious purposes. From the ashes of Anonymous rose Barrett Brown, a journalist and computer information expert who dove deep into the connections and activities of computer espionage at the most clandestine levels. The interconnections of government contractors, lucrative side deals, and wholesale spycraft that he discovered have led to the term Cyber Industrial Complex. This is the story of what that nebulous collective seems to be up to and what you need to know about the possibility for a coming, contrived, cyber pandemic disaster false flag. Important and incredible things will unfold in this episode of Renegade Files as we unravel the dark networks of the Cyber Industrial Complex. Part 1. Spies Like Us For as long as people have lived in groups, there have been spies. Weaker, struggling Neanderthal tribes very likely spied on neighboring clans in order to find new sources of fresh water or forage plants. The earliest conflicts between nation-states generated some of the first double-agent spies, and that would have been a dangerous job for sure. Many early spies were captured war criminals who were forced into their espionage roles. The history of war spying in America dates back to the American Revolution, where spies played a crucial role in gathering intelligence and shaping the outcome of that conflict. During the Civil War, both the Union and the Confederacy employed spies to gather information about each other. In World Wars I and II, the U.S. government utilized a centralized spying system and employed a vast network of agents to gather information about their enemies. In the Cold War era, espionage activities between the U.S. and the Soviet Union became a major concern. The establishment of the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, in 1947 marked a new era of American intelligence gathering organized, specialized, and funded. 
Today, the U.S. continues to employ spies and gather intelligence as a means of ensuring national security. As we have seen, any time the American government becomes involved in some wide-scale, far-reaching project to increase its own power and influence, its entertainment division, the Hollywood studio creators, and their distribution channel partners have to give us a romanticized version of that activity, and the theme of spycraft is no exception. Spying in American cinema is a popular and enduring genre that has been around since the first days of film. And these movies are known to often depict the world of espionage in a swashbuckling and exaggerated way. Spying in American movies is a mixture of action, suspense, mystery, and of course, romance. From James Bond to Jason Bourne, the genre has given us some of the most iconic and memorable characters in silver screen history. The spy genre has also explored the darker side of espionage, including themes such as betrayal, deception, and moral ambiguity. To this day, spying in American cinema fiction remains a staple of the entertainment industry. One Hollywood movie that tackles the subject is the 2016 biographical drama film Snowden, which is based on true events and characters and was directed by Oliver Stone. The film follows the story of Edward Snowden, who became a national security whistleblower when he leaked classified information to the media. This film highlights Snowden's journey from fiercely loyal patriot to one of the most wanted men in the world. It explores the political and ethical implications of government surveillance and how such activities affect individual privacy and civil liberties. Snowden is a powerful and thought-provoking film that raises important questions about the balance between national security and individual freedom. These questions resonate with so many people because, as we know, that movie is about a real person who did, essentially, the exact things depicted in the movie. Edward Snowden is an American computer professional and former Central Intelligence Agency employee who gained international notoriety in 2013 for revealing the spying activities of the National Security Agency, or NSA. Snowden's disclosures revealed the deep extent of government surveillance programs aimed at common and free citizens and sparked debates about privacy and government authority. Snowden then fled the United States and sought asylum in Russia, where he currently resides. Despite being charged with violating the Espionage Act of 1917, Snowden has been widely celebrated as a whistleblower and a champion of privacy rights. He has received numerous awards and honors, including the Sam Adams Award, the Ridenhauer Prize, and the George Polk Award. Snowden remains a controversial figure, however, with some considering him a traitor and others viewing him as a hero. The information Snowden revealed illuminated a massive global surveillance program conducted by the NSA in partnership with foreign intelligence agencies that was monitoring the phone and internet activities of millions of individuals worldwide. Millions. Including 
U.S. citizens both at home and abroad. One of the things Snowden discovered and disclosed in 2013 is what we now know as the NSA's PRISM program. PRISM, that's P-R-I-S-M, stands for Planning Tool for Resource Integration, Synchronization, and Management. PRISM is a secret surveillance program run by the NSA which allows them to collect data from leading internet companies such as Google, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft. The data collected includes emails, photos, videos, and other forms of online communication. The program was authorized by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, and was designed to target foreign individuals and organizations. However, the information revealed by Snowden showed us that this program also collects data on U.S. citizens, which raises significant concerns about privacy and, once again, civil liberties. And remember, this is not a conspiracy theory. The PRISM program operates by allowing the NSA to directly access the servers of participating companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft, and collect user data without the need for a warrant. Think about that. And for showing us this, Edward Snowden is called a traitor. The NSA is given warrantless access to this data, your data, because the program operates under the assumption that the data being collected is for foreign intelligence purposes, and therefore it does not require a warrant for collection. Critics argue that this is a violation of the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which protects citizens against unreasonable searches and seizures. The revelations about the PRISM program sparked a global debate about privacy and government surveillance, with many arguing that the program represents an overreach of government power. Despite this, the program continues to operate, although the extent of its reach and the details of its operation remain shrouded in secrecy. This is an issue. Snowden also disclosed information about something called X-Keyscore. The NSA's X-Keyscore program is a powerful tool that allows the NSA to search and analyze vast amounts of data collected from the internet, including emails, instant messages, and online searches. Uh-oh. The program operates by collecting metadata from various sources, including the aforementioned PRISM program, as well as fiber optic cable taps. Like PRISM, X-Keyscore also collects data on U.S. citizens. The NSA's full capability to search and analyze this data remains unknown to the public, but I think it's safe to assume that it's more than fairly competent and extensive. Edward Snowden continues to be a strong advocate for privacy and civil liberties in America and beyond. He has stated that the U.S. government's use of mass surveillance has significant implications for the protection of personal privacy and freedom of speech. He argues that the government's use of such programs as PRISM and X-Keyscore undermines these rights and erodes the principle of due process. 
Snowden believes that the U.S. government must strike a balance between national security and individual privacy and freedom, and he has called for greater transparency and accountability in government surveillance programs. Snowden continues to speak out about these issues through various media appearances and public speeches usually conducted through live online video chats. Edward Snowden currently lives in Russia after seeking and being granted asylum there in 2013 for a period of one year. He has since been allowed to remain in the country, and while Snowden is technically not in prison in Russia, he is also not completely free. He faces charges of espionage and theft of government property in the U.S. and would be arrested if he ever returned. In Russia, Snowden is under the protection of the government, but his movements and activities are closely monitored. Although he is an influential voice in the debate over privacy and government surveillance, he remains a controversial figure in both the U.S. and in Russia. And think of the supreme irony of someone who is a champion of free speech having to seek political asylum in Russia. Part 2. Spy versus Spy If there's one thing Edward Snowden has taught us for sure, it is that when it comes to independent researchers spying on the spies, the spies don't like it. And the more they don't like you and what you're doing, the more trouble you could be in. One person they really don't like is Barrett Brown partly because of what he has allegedly done, but I think mostly because if your nefarious activities happen to be the target of Barrett Brown's laser-like exposure and sardonic wit, he is immensely unlikable. It's the main reason that I like the guy so much. Barrett Brown is an American journalist and activist who gained notoriety for his reporting on the inner workings of the intelligence contracting industry and the use of surveillance technologies by the U.S. government. He has written for several publications including The Guardian, Vanity Fair, and The Huffington Post. Brown was also a member of the hacker collective Anonymous, but he has publicly distanced himself from the group and he seems annoyed at media pundits who continue to cast him as an Anon affiliate. In 2013, Barrett Brown was sentenced to 63 months in federal prison for charges related to the hacking of private intelligence firm Strategic Forecasting, also known as Stratfor, and for obstructing the execution of a search warrant. He was released from prison in 2016 Barrett Brown coined the term Cyber Industrial Complex to describe the convergence of private military and security contractors, technology companies, and government intelligence agencies who work together to sell and utilize cybersecurity products and services for surveillance, intelligence gathering, and military operations. According to Brown, the cyber-industrial complex operates beyond the reach of public accountability and democratic oversight, 
with far-reaching and potentially dangerous implications for privacy, civil liberties, and freedom of speech. The term cyber-industrial complex draws intentional parallels to the military-industrial complex and highlights the growing power and influence created by the convergence of information and communication technology companies with federal and state security and intelligence agencies. In 2013, Barrett Brown was arrested due to a series of events that took place over the course of several preceding years. We went over some of this activity and much more in Renegade Files episode number 5, Anonymous and the Birth of Hacktivist Culture, so be sure to check that out, and if you already listened to it, share it with your friends by posting a link to therenegadefiles.com on your social media or in a text and mentioning that episode, Renegade Files Episode 5, Anonymous and the Birth of Hacktivist Culture. And thanks for doing that. You rock. Cheers. I also want to say that if you have just discovered Renegade Files, be sure to go back to Episode 1 and listen to that and the others from the beginning because there is great material there, and I've tried to make most of what we do here evergreen, so the subjects don't get old, even if the episode dates do. So, go back and check out some of those old episodes. Thanks. As for this series of events that landed Barrett Brown in the clink, it goes a little something like this. Beginning in 2008 and up to 2011, Barrett Brown began to focus his investigative journalism on government and corporate corruption, and he started writing articles on the subject. Barrett Brown was among the circles of online activists and computer security enthusiasts concerned with the subjects of privacy and speech rights, possibly being affected by the letter agencies and their increasingly deep forays into the communication and surveillance technology arenas. So he was there as the hacker group Anonymous took shape and we know he took part in some of those early anonymous ops. Then, in December 2011, Brown was linked to the release of sensitive information from the intelligence firm Strategic Forecasting, as we mentioned before, Stratfor. So at some point in 2012, another anonymous hacker who goes by the hacker alias Sabu was arrested for his part in hacking both H.B. Gary Federal and Stratfor. He instantly became an FBI informant. He rolled over so quickly that no one suspected he had even been arrested, and so he was able to, as I understand it, take computer system backdoor keys given to him by the FBI, provide these to Barrett Brown, who then used them to access the Stratfor data, which led to what happened next. So Sabu was arrested turned into an informant for the FBI. The FBI then gave him access codes to internal Stratfor computer systems, which Sabu gave to Barrett Brown, who then used those and was arrested for it. That's a detailed way to say, framed. As a side note, much has been made about Sabu being a rat, and he did help to bust his friend, but at the time, Sabu, whose real name is Hector Monseguer, was ultimately sentenced to seven years in prison for his crimes, which is more than twice the time that Barrett Brown served for his first arrest. Here's a quick timeline. 
In March 2012, the FBI raids Brown's home and seizes his computers and other equipment. In September 2012, Brown is charged with threatening a federal agent and obstruction of justice for threatening to release the personal information of a government agent. So, as far as what he did, this might be what got him in the most trouble, at least in the beginning. December 2012, Brown is charged with additional offenses related to the release of the information from Stratfor. September 2013, Brown is arrested and charged with identity theft, conspiracy to commit access device fraud, and accessory after the fact to unauthorized access of a protected computer. So when we read that when Brown was arrested in 2013, he was charged with identity theft, this isn't the typical identity theft that we think of someone pretending to be someone else with their social security and their credit card number and then buying stuff on Amazon. What that identity theft refers to for the most part is the stealing of passwords. So doesn't make it right. Just a little clarification. And there are other things in there, much deeper charges, and there's a lot that I don't understand about it. However, it's not your typical classical identity theft case, okay? More nuanced. November 2013, Brown pleads guilty to three charges, including obstruction of justice and threatening a federal agent, threatening to disclose his private information. So January 2015, Brown is sentenced to 63 months in federal prison. Barrett Brown's arrest and subsequent conviction were highly controversial, with many journalists and civil rights organizations raising questions about the implications of those charges and his sentence for press freedom and freedom of speech. When we read the articles and opinion pieces about Barrett Brown and his arrests, one subject that is often absent is that of Project PM. Back in 2009, way before his incarceration or any of the activities that allegedly led to it, Barrett Brown started Project PM. Project PM is a crowdsourced research initiative created to investigate and expose the inner workings of the intelligence and security contracting industry, including private intelligence companies, government agencies, and other institutions involved in the gathering and analysis of intelligence information. The project was started in response to the growing influence and power of private intelligence companies and the lack of transparency in their operations. Brown saw these companies as a threat to the public's right to know and the importance of an informed democratic republic. Project PM became well known for its role in uncovering and publishing information about the intelligence and security industry. So this falls into that category of no one hates a snoop more than a snoop. It's interesting that Project PM continues to operate as a community-driven research initiative with volunteers and supporters continuing to investigate and expose the inner workings of the intelligence and security industry. The project remains an important voice in the fight for transparency and accountability in the intelligence and security world, despite it being labeled a criminal organization by many intelligence agencies because, of course they label it that. So after serving his sentence for his initial arrest, Brown fled to Europe, where he spent several months traveling and continuing his activism. While in England, Brown was involved in a number of activities, including the creation of a new organization called the Pursuance Project, 
which aim to provide a platform for activists to collaborate on social and political issues. In January 2018, Brown was arrested in London for allegedly violating UK immigration laws, but many felt that this was just a way to send him back to the States at the behest of US officials. No direct proof of that has been found or made public. He was subsequently detained at a UK detention center pending deportation to the United States. While in detention, Brown staged a protest of sorts by hanging a banner from his cell window that read, Free Barrett Brown. The banner incident attracted significant media attention with many people expressing concern about Brown's treatment and calling for his release. He was finally let go nearly a year later and immediately, on November 10, 2018, Brown attended a protest in London against the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States. Julian Assange, as you know, is the founder of WikiLeaks, also previously known as the hacker Mendax, the greatest hacker of all time. During the protest, Brown and a group of activists unfurled a large banner over a bridge that read Free Julian Assange. They then marched through the streets of London with Brown carrying a smaller banner that read, Journalism is not a crime. At one point, the group was confronted by the police who demanded that they remove the Assange banner. Brown initially refused, arguing that he had the right to peaceful protest and freedom of speech. However, after a brief standoff, Brown eventually agreed to take down the banner. The incident gained widespread attention on social media and in the press, with many criticizing the police's actions as an infringement on free speech and peaceful protest. Brown himself later wrote about the incident, arguing that the police had overstepped their bounds and that the incident was indicative of a broader trend of government suppression of free speech and independent journalism. Brown was ultimately deported to the United States in April 2018, where he was again sentenced to five years in prison for computer security crimes, but he was released in 2019. So what has Barrett Brown found for us since his latest release? Mainly, he has given us discoveries into the interconnections of the companies Abraxas and Cubic, and their relationships to a product called Persona Management Software, and the ways that application connects with something called Trapwire. Come with me now as we dive into these clandestine operations and unravel the cloak and dagger worlds which they inhabit. Abraxas, that's A-B-R-A-X-A-S, is a subsidiary of Cubic Corporation, C-U-B-I-C, a publicly traded defense and transportation technology company. Abraxas provides security and surveillance technologies, including persona management software, or what's often called the persona management software. Persona Management Software is a biometric identification and tracking system that can be used for various security applications such as access control, border security, and law enforcement. So this is software that can catalog and then recognize people by their faces and physical appearances such as height and weight. It's the kind of product a casino might use to track and identify known cheaters. Trapwire was another subsidiary of Cubic Corporation that provided surveillance and threat detection technology. 
Trapwire uses advanced algorithms to analyze surveillance footage and detect potential security threats. So here's where things get crazy. Trapwire is often used in combination with persona management software to enhance the overall security and surveillance capabilities of a system. So imagine persona management software that can recognize you even if you're in a disguise. And that software is connected and leveraged through millions of surveillance cameras, traffic cameras, and security cameras for buildings and parks and, well, everywhere. All of them aggregated through Trapwire. A system like that could follow you throughout your whole day and even across the country. Private security contractors publicly denied that anything like Trapwire existed. Trapwire does many things, but one of the most amazing is the way it collects and analyzes multiple instances of actions filmed on the myriad of interconnected surveillance cameras and then uses this data to predict and intervene in potential terrorist activities. That can be a really good thing, and it has stopped potential problems. So it identifies and cross-references suspicious behaviors. Since every agency and company was denying that Trapwire even existed, Barrett Brown and some of his friends decided to test it. And you can hear Brown describe doing this in more than one documentary on Anonymous or Brown or hacking in general. What they did was a few different things, like park a van across from a federal building while simultaneously having someone drop a duffel bag at a park across the street, while another person in a coffee shop next door went in without ordering anything and opened up a laptop. In minutes, these cohorts were cornered and interrogated by federal agents, and they supposedly did stuff like this more than once. And these guys wonder why they keep getting arrested. But still, they had pieced together tons of informational links and clues that suggested something like Trapwire was at work, and when they provoked it, it seemed to respond. With this kind of encouragement that he was on the right track, Brown kept digging and he discovered that Abraxas, Cubic, Persona Management Software, and Trapwire are all related in that they are, or were at the time, all subsidiaries of Cubic Corporation and together the systems provide security and surveillance technologies through selling big dollar contracts to government agencies and that persona management software and trapwire are used together to enhance the overall security and surveillance capabilities of this integrated system. Before we dive deeper into trapwire and its persona management component, let's look a bit more into who Cubic Corporation is. Cubic Corporation is a multinational technology company specializing in defense and transportation solutions. The company provides a wide range of products and services such as intelligent transportation systems, military training systems, payment and ticketing solutions, and mobile communications. Cubic has operations in North America, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, serving customers in various industries including transportation, defense, security, and entertainment. And once again, we see the bedfellows of defense, security, and entertainment. They employ over 10,000 people. 
In 2019, Cubic's revenue was $2.5 billion, with a net income of $82.7 million. In 2020, Cubic Corporation reported revenues of $2.4 billion, so down just a bit, but a net income of $49.7 million, so that was down by 47%. These figures indicate a decline in revenue and income for the company in 2020, probably due to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the global economy and the defense and transportation industries. So this is a serious operation that not only generates revenue in the billions, but does so at a profit. Part three, the spy who loved me. What exactly then is Trapwire? Trapwire is a surveillance software used for identifying potential security threats in real time. It uses data analytics and artificial intelligence algorithms to analyze patterns of behavior in various areas and detect potential threats such as theft, terrorism, or other criminal activities. Trapwire collects and analyzes data from various sources including cameras, sensors, and social media, and it provides real-time alerts to security personnel. It is used by government agencies, commercial organizations, and critical infrastructure facilities to enhance their security and to protect against potential threats. By and large, it's a good thing, if it works the way it's supposed to and if it's used in the parameters that we would imagine, but then again, who really knows? So why does it matter? Well, Trapwire software is considered controversial for five main reasons. One, privacy concerns. Trapwire uses advanced surveillance technology to monitor public places and track people's movements, which raises serious privacy concerns among individuals and civil rights groups. Number two, it has a secretive nature. Trapwire is a highly secretive program, and the company behind it has been accused of being secretive about how it operates and what data it collects. Number three, government surveillance. The software has been used by government agencies and intelligence organizations, leading to concerns about government surveillance and the potential for the abuse of that power. Number four, there are unclear benefits. Critics argue that the benefits of Trapwire are unclear and that the cost of the program is disproportionate to any potential benefits. And number five, a lack of transparency. The company behind Trapwire has been criticized for a lack of transparency about how this software works, what data it collects and keeps, and how that data is used. So overall, Trapwire software is considered controversial due to concerns about privacy, government surveillance, lack of transparency, and the unclear benefits of the program when compared to its extremely high cost. The conspiracies enter this conversation because of the hijinks of installing Trapwire and the government insider slash elected official contract game. And here's an interesting twist. Trapwire is marketed by Stratfor, which was the company that Barrett Brown doxxed and got himself arrested for his troubles. An article from Wired Magazine by Noah Stachman entitled Trapwire, It's Not the Surveillance, It's the Sleaze, tells us that 
Stratfor's now famous business partner, Trapwire Incorporated, began as a division of Abraxas Corporation, one of the more prominent intelligence contractors to crop up after the 9-11 attacks. Started by Richard Helms, the former head of the CIA's European division, the company grew so quickly that by 2005, Helms boasted it was, quote, the largest aggregate of analytical counterterrorism capabilities outside of the U.S. government, unquote. The CIA began entrusting Abraxas with one of its most sensitive tasks, constructing false identities, front companies, and cover stories for agents traveling overseas. At one point, so many CIA employees were jumping ship to go to work for Abraxas that the director of the CIA asked them to stop recruiting CIA agents and employees. In 2009, most of Abraxas was sold off to the defense contractor Cubic Corporation. Trapwire was not included in the deal. It had not generated the revenue that executives had expected when the product was first launched. Cubic took the unusual step of issuing a press release stating that it has no affiliation with the surveillance firm Trapwire. The spider web of all of this points to a double-edged concern. One, a staggering amount of your personal and private information is available to the US government and their private agency contractors through big tech companies who agree to hand over user data without warrants on the basis of national security. And two, the purchase and maintenance of these spy systems generates billions of dollars for these private companies, and the vast majority of these taxpayer dollars are not subject to any public review or democratic oversight because they fall under the black ops veil of national security secrecy. Together, these concerns frame what we can now call thanks to Barrett Brown, the cyber industrial complex. One other shady operation that deserves to be brought to light here is a little jewel called AIMS. That's A-I-M-S, which stands for Advanced Impact Media Solutions, and is sold by a group called Team Jorge, which is a disinformation collective based in Israel. AIMS is a software for hire application that controls in the neighborhood of 30,000 fake online profiles, each complete with accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Gmail, Amazon, and or Airbnb, just to name a few. According to The Guardian, the sole purpose of this army of fake profiles is to spread propaganda. The operator of the group told The Guardian that they had sold access to AIMS to unnamed intelligence agencies, political parties, and corporate clients. One example of the power of such an application is the October 2020 campaign launched by someone using AIMS to discredit the UK's Information Commission's Office, or ICO, after the ICO ruled that the UK government should reveal which companies were awarded multi-million dollar contracts to supply personal protective equipment for the pandemic. Two days after this ruling, one of these known Ames fake personas tweeted, quote, this is politically motivated, it's clear. And at the time, no one knew this was a fake persona. 
That tweet became the originator for a chorus of disapproval generated as replies by other AIMS bots with tweets like, the ICO tries everything to destroy the government, and others calling the ruling a desperate act. Others described the ICO as a waste of time and lame, accusing it of taking bribes and more. All of this outcry was generated by fake profiles, all cheering in and chiming in and replying to each other's posts, making it look like a huge underground grassroots movement was against the ICO trying to make public knowledge who these companies were that received these million dollar contracts. What happens then is that real people are swayed by what looks like genuine widespread opinion, but is really just a single organization, probably one of the companies with one of those multi-million dollar contracts the ICO wants to make public. And now the world is blaming the ICO for being corrupt. And no one ever learned that those companies who were rewarded those huge government PPE contracts were each fast-laned due to their political contributions. And that's just one example. The article authors claim to have found AIMS activity across the internet with identified activity in commercial disputes in 20 countries. Their analysis found a vast array of fake profile activities being involved in such things as a California nuclear power dispute, a Me Too controversy in Canada, and an election in Senegal. They also found real-world events that appeared to have been staged, such as a fake protest outside of a company in London. In those social media posts, three masked activists waving signs are pictured protesting in front of this UK company, but no such protest on the ground ever actually happened. And these fake profiles go deep. For instance, the fake bots protesting the London company If you dig into their profile histories and other posts, you find that they have reposted articles from the UK's Daily Mirror, the BBC, that they have deep interests in the royal family and their gossip, they've made posts about Liz Truss's performance as British Foreign Minister, and have posted lighthearted jokes about British weather and food, as well as scenic pictures from Yorkshire. This type of deep background gives credibility when the same fake person starts to tweet about how stupid it is that the UK's ICO wants the companies who got huge government contracts to be made public. For their part, Facebook and Insta have reportedly taken down any AIMS bots they know about. Still, scary stuff. Part 4. The Cyber Plandemic The idea of a large-scale cyber pandemic has surfaced and been discussed recently for one main reason, which is the fact that the World Economic Forum has been kicking this idea around lately and that that group has a track record of preparing for imaginary things that then materialize precisely in the ways they predicted and prepared for and therefore profited by. So much so that people call foul because it seems like they're creating these disasters in order to have a crisis to manage and benefit from. We'll get into this in more detail. So what is the World Economic Forum? You may know. The World Economic Forum, or WEF, is an international organization established in 1971 and headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland. 
It's a nonprofit foundation that aims to improve the state of the world by engaging business, political, and academic, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. The World Economic Forum hosts an annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland, where leaders from around the world gather to discuss and address the world's most pressing issues and challenges, including economic, social, and environmental issues. The WEF also convenes regional and industry-specific events throughout the year and works on various initiatives and projects aimed at promoting sustainable and inclusive economic growth, advancing the fourth industrial revolution, and improving the state of the world. The founder and executive chairman of the WEF is Klaus Schwab. Some of the events that the WEF has predicted in the past include the fourth industrial revolution, which is characterized by the rise of artificial intelligence, robotics, and the internet of things, climate change and its impact on the global economy and society, the increasing importance of the digital economy and the growing need for cybersecurity measures, the decline of traditional work models and the rise of the gig economy, the impact of demographic changes and aging populations on global economic and social systems, the spread of technological innovations and the increasing importance of digital literacy and skills, and the increasing polarization of the world and the need for greater collaboration and cooperation to address global challenges. The Cyber Industrial Complex and the World Economic Forum are connected in several ways. For one, cybersecurity and digital privacy are increasingly becoming important topics at these WEF meetings because they are critical issues in the global economy. The WEF has established several initiatives and working groups to explore and address these issues. Additionally, Many of the companies and organizations involved in the cyber industrial complex are also members of the WEF or participate in the WEF activities. These organizations often use the WEF platform to promote their products and services, connect with potential clients and partners, and shape the global cybersecurity and privacy agenda. Overall, the Cyber Industrial Complex and the World Economic Forum are both key players in shaping the global cybersecurity landscape, and they are connected through their shared interest in addressing digital privacy and security issues. This gets into creepy ground for one main reason called Event 201. Event 201 was an exercise conducted by John Hopkins University, the Bill and Linda Gates Foundation, and the World Economic Forum, and this took place in October of 2019, right before the outbreak of the COVID-19 virus and the resulting pandemic. The suspicious thing is that Event 201 was a roundtable discussion among these WEF, Gates Foundation, and university think tank types, where they poured over scenarios and ideas about how governments and large corporations should respond and react to a global virus pandemic. It was exactly a playbook meeting where all of the plays were discussed and refined. Then, a few months later, bam, 
we get the COVID-19 pandemic. It felt like a trial run and clear preparation for the pandemic, so much so that Johns Hopkins and the Event 201 crew have a standing statement refuting such an accusation on their website front page, and in my opinion, it's pretty weak. Here is what they have to say about these accusations, and this is their exact statement. Quote, in October 2019, the John Hopkins Center for Health Security hosted a pandemic tabletop exercise called Event 201 with partners, the World Economic Forum, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Recently, the Center for Health Security has received questions about whether that pandemic exercise predicted the current coronavirus outbreak in China. To be clear, the Center for Health Security and Partners did not make a prediction during our tabletop exercise. For the scenario, we modeled a fictional coronavirus pandemic, but we explicitly stated that it was not a prediction. Instead, the exercise served to highlight preparedness and response challenges that would likely arise in a very severe pandemic. Although our tabletop exercise included a mock novel coronavirus, the inputs we use for modeling the potential impact of that fictitional virus are not similar to COVID-19. Unquote. <laughs> okay, so the mock novel coronavirus that the World Economic Forum John Hopkins and the Gates Foundation used in their exercise months before the start of the pandemic wasn't clinically the same as COVID-19, and their exercise never said they were predicting a pandemic, so they didn't predict it. <laughs> wow. So what does this have to do with the cyber industrial complex and the surveillance state overreach? In July of 2021, Kendra Nichols wrote an article for ABC affiliate WHTM called Prepping for a Cyber Pandemic, Worldwide Drill Underway. In this article, she writes that the World Economic Forum has kicked off their exercise called Cyber Polygon, which is a simulation of a cyber pandemic. This simulation is, according to the article, quote, a practice session in which they get to brainstorm a scenario. How would this affect the world economy? How might this affect individual corporations? And what can be done to protect them? What is being talked about is a potential real-world situation. End quote. This exercise involved 200 teams from 48 countries. The focus of the live drill is a targeted supply chain attack on a corporation. The article goes on to say, if a scenario like this happened in real life, it could impact our daily lives by shutting down water treatment facilities, the power grid, or the internet. The article asks, what would you do if you couldn't access your bank accounts, the internet, or if your cell phone suddenly stopped working? This is seriously scary because of the fact that the WEF and their allies nailed their non-prediction of the COVID pandemic so precisely. And now they're at it again, not predicting a very detailed and potentially devastating cyber pandemic where all of the interconnected infrastructure from the digital world that connects our water, 
cell phones, and bank accounts gets hacked and shut off. You think that might be a problem? So why is a cyber pandemic so perfect? That is, perfect from the false flag crisis management of big corporate government collusion agendas. One, the subject matter is beyond the common understanding of the masses, but it is employed almost universally by them. Number two, communication, finance, utilities, food supply chain, healthcare, law enforcement, fuel, energy, travel, and insurance. In other words, the major working components of the world's societies are fully interconnected through the mechanisms of the internet, internet of things, electronic databases, and digital processes. And three, this combination of complex and esoteric tools and their ubiquity across all major societal functions makes the infrastructure of a digitally interconnected world the ideal bottleneck for disrupting the flows of all things connected to and through it. My conclusions. The information here is complex and involved, but I think it speaks for itself, so my conclusion is simple. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe or agree with every politically critical tweet or social media post you see, because it's very likely that those are just more fake profile-generated propaganda. As for the potential cyber pandemic false flag disaster, what can we as individuals do about it? Good question. The more we are reliant on electronics for our money, our communications, our jobs, our food and water, then the more vulnerable we are to those things being shut down. It's far easier to say, grow your own food and collect your own water, than it is to actually do that. It can be done and people go off grid and homestead all the time. A minority to be sure, but it is possible. All I'll say here is be aware. Do your own digging and look into what the man tells you. Don't believe everything you see or read online, but if you're listening to Renegade Files, you probably don't do that already anyway. This is a fascinating subject because it ties together some crazy ideas. If you want to dive deeper into it, I've got tons of research in the Dark Intel Files on Patreon. Check it out. You can help the show grow and prosper and dig deeper at the same time. Barrett Brown is an interesting guy. He might be his own worst enemy but I think that's just because he can't help to act on what he thinks is right. He stands up for the rest of us. He gets arrested for the freedom of speech and rights to privacy and information that we sign away with every terms of agreement we click through to send money to our friend, to like a YouTube video, or to stream a football game on our iPhone. I'll leave you with a quote from Edward Snowden. Even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched and recorded. The storage capability of the systems increases every year by orders of magnitude. Then they can use the system to go back in time and scrutinize every decision you've ever made, every friend you've ever discussed something with, and attack you on that basis to sort of derive suspicion from an innocent life and paint anyone into the context of a wrongdoer. 
thank you sincerely for investigating the cyber industrial complex with me. I'm really glad to have you in the Renegade Files crew. Thank you to the Renegade Files agents on Patreon who keep the shows ad-free. Join us there and interact with me and the other RFA agents, get bonus episodes and lots of other free content, and help me keep making these episodes. Until our next adventure, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. agent child. Stay wild, stay wild, stay wild, stay wild.